Should we just read an email and not do an hello? Yeah. Oh, first email today! <laughs> That'd confuse people, wouldn't it? Yeah, it we was. just didn't even say hello. We should do it anyway. Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey, kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better. Stronger. Faster. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And welcome back to the show. Our show. This show. Of goodliness. 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 Is that what it is? Yeah. Is it next to God cleanliness? Yes. It's not exactly badliness, is it? <laughs> oh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure some pedant out there could pick holes in it if they really wanted to. Most of our listeners don't do stuff like that. No, no. So... We don't have pedants who listen. We, we, you said that this happened in issue 47, when it really happened in issue 46. We, we don't have, have any of that. We have pedants who record, but not who listen. Yeah. <laughs> We're the ones who are recording. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, lovelies. It's nice to be back. Got nothing this week? No. No intro? No. Nothing exciting? We, we will have next week. Yes, next week. We tease. will have been to Thought Bubble. We Although as this goes up, away. we were at Thought Bubble. Yeah. It were grand. It, it were. <laughs> it were grand, it were. <laughs> Ecky thump. Yeah, yeah. So we're just going into emails then. Yeah, I think yeah, would be yeah. the uh, the best course of action. The first email today is Bobby Coakley. Po-faced X-Men and lesser known Batman stories. The Batman one provokes a lot of email. I like that. He did it. I like that quite a lot. Hello Leyland. Hello Bobby. First off, I remember how you said Brian Singer's X-Men movies are po-faced. I had to look up this term to see what it meant. It meant too serious or piously solemn. I would never have said piously solemn, but that's, it works, I suppose. Mr. Singer films are piously solemn. <laughs> this is Hakeid's comics, uh, Lewis Hyde, BBC Cooper. Are you wearing a turtleneck now? I hope you join us by the fire. My, my turtleneck and my, my thatch... <laughs> My, no, my tweed, tweed. My tweed jacket. You missed a tweedy jacket. Yeah. Excellent. Glass Very of good. whiskey in one hand, pipe in the other. Can I continue with Bobby's email? You can indeed, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the trailer for X-Men Days of Future Past has music from Danny Boyle's Sunshine and Terrence Malik's The Thin Red Line. That practically screams po-face to me, as well as James McAvoy shouting, I don't want your suffering! I don't want your future! Whilst Jennifer Lawrence weeps and Hugh Jackman roars. Does that mean you're not looking forward to it, Bobby? <laughs> I'm not, I'm, I'm, you know. I mean, everyone knows what I think of Days of Future Past. <laughs> we won't beat that dead horse to death anymore. No. Next, your list of great Batman Have running ones. Have you dead horse to death anymore? It's an exceptionally good point. <laughs> I, I applaud you for pointing out my, my wrongness. Well. So you said at the beginning there is no badness. There was badness. That was wrongness. It's was it? Oh, badness. Yeah, okay, yeah. Bobby's email continues. Next, your list of great Batman done in one stories. You both picked great ones. I list some of mine. Oh, this is what I was talking about last week, isn't yes. it? I wanted people to. And I, I told yeah. you someone had done. You I did. You Bobby. were. Yes, you were right. You must have read this email before me then. I must have. Excellent. 
Uh, Bobby, yes, he's yeah. Uh, Bobby's recommendations are Detective Comics issue six three three Identity Crisis, written by Peter Milligan and drawn by Tom Mandrake. Bruce Wayne wakes up in the Gotham River with no idea how he got there, and he's not Batman. And that's just the start of this mind-bending mystery. The story is similar to the Batman animated episode Perchance to Dream, written by Joe R. Lansdale, which aired only a year later. I'm trying to remember if I've read that one. Mine, I'm, am I mixing that up with this one? There's a Legend of the Dark Knight. Yes, I must be, because that was by Brian Talbot, where Bruce Wayne wakes up and realises that being Batman is all a fantasy. Do you remember that episode of Buffy? Yeah. Where she wakes up and it's all... She's in a mental asylum, and all the stuff of her being a slayer is all just in her head. Yeah. It's basically that. It's the real, the alternate ending. Yes, the alternate ending to Buffy, (laughs) where she's, she's actually a crackpot. Yeah. And none of it's real. So uh, that's the one I'm thinking of. It was in Legends of the Dark Knight. The very next issue, Detective Comics 634, Bobby recommends, The Third Man, written by Kelly Puckett, with art by Luke McDonald. Two little old ladies help Batman solve a murder. They are the Biddy sisters. <laughs> and a very specific, and how you spell your, the name in your word balloon, Biddy, old Biddy. Yeah, that. Yeah, old people are all biddies. Oh, oh, right. That was quite quite funny. Uh, That that made me laugh. I don't think I've read that one. I think that one would sound familiar. Two other great single Batman stories involve a theatre playing Mask of Zorro, but may not count as done in one. Batman 459 by Alan Grant and Norm Brayfogle. Saturday Night at the Movies. Ah, I've read that one. As Batman saving a family taken hostage outside a movie theatre. Batman tells the boy how Mask of Zorro inspired him, and the boy rushes to see the rest of the movie. The issue ends with Commissioner Gordon collapsing of a heart attack, which is both a cliffhanger and a public service announcement. Yeah, I remember all the ads. Mm. Batman's best friend isn't on the streets today. Yeah. And it was Gordon in bed with all the wires it's up. It's all those span out of that ending. Yeah, span out of that story. Yeah. Right. Batman 604 Reasons by Ed Brubaker and Scott McDaniel is part of the Bruce Wayne Fugitive storyline but was also reprinted in the Batman Begins trade. While teaming up with Catwoman, Batman reflects on his past, why he does what he does and when Bruce Wayne became the mask. Standing on a theatre showing of The Mark of Zorro and actually smiling while the sun rises, Batman thinks, I am Bruce Wayne. I always have been. I know I've not read that. Because I've currently, one of my quests at the minute yeah. is to complete my Ed Brubaker, Scott McDaniel, Batman run. Well, I'm missing quite a few of them. I did have the Batman Begins trade paperback. Did you? Yeah. I don't have it anymore. Can't remember what happened to it. A lot of my things just disappeared for some reason. But there was an issue in there that I actually wanted to do for the show. And I can't remember what it was called or what it was, but I remember it, it was Batman falling mm. off a building. And by the end of the story, he falls to his death and he dies. And is that not the man who falls? Was that it? I think so. And it wasn't Batman all along. Yeah. Mm. I think it was that one. Yeah, I've read that. Why have you not got that trade anymore? I have no idea. Right. Okay. It disappeared with, along with... Yeah, it must have been when Adam was sick and we had to get rid of loads of our things. Because he was sick all over him. Yeah. Yeah, that was pleasant, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Or Buzz Lightyear. Oh, God. <laughs> He's never been the same again, was, was he? my Buzz Lightyear. Yeah, it's, well, your Buzz Lightyear was then full of sick. <laughs> so I think you decided, no, I'm, I'm not keeping that. All right, fair enough. Finally, Bobby wraps up, if you're looking for things for your upcoming Daredevil episode, you may want to try the underrated Tree of Knowledge story from Daredevil 326 to 332. While set in the mid-90s days of the internet and rather dated, there are some very interesting plot points about privacy, free information and government overreach. Maybe worth considering. Keep up the good work, says Bobby. Thanks, Bob. I will check those. I will certainly check out the Ed Brubaker one. Is that Brubaker? Brubaker! He's not Brubaker. Yeah, sorry about that. Um... 
Uh, yeah, I'll take that out because Pete Milligan's normally good for a, a laugh, isn't he? Mm. And uh, I am, as I said, trying to complete the Ed Brubaker run. So, yes, we'll try that. So thank you for recommending them. Our next email is Ian McGregor. Hello, Ian. Hello, Ian. <laughs> Hello, lovely Leyland. Hello, Ian. First of all, congratulations on reaching 150 episodes. That is an amazing achievement. It didn't really feel like an amazing achievement. It we, we just kind of we just do this now. It's just yeah. part of the life, isn't it? Every week we do a show. It's become very systematic. 90% of people. We've become part of the machine, man. <laughs> We're part of the system. 90% of the people who listen probably enjoy it. Yeah. There's always a 10% who listen just to be annoyed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't do that. I don't listen to something just to be annoyed and by the clipping it. clipping bits as well, just to make a, a, a collage, a montage of all our badliness. <laughs> Any episode probably has a plethora of badliness. And when, when the show finishes, they're going to do one of those like TV shows where they get celebrities <laughs> to talk about it. Well, celebrities that just five minutes ago probably looked at a clip so they can talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, like that. <laughs> Awful BBC Three Doctor Who documentary I was watching the other day. It, it was that bad. It was alright. It was BBC Three. What was I expecting? I, I guess. Uh, anyway, back to Ian's email. <laughs> After listening to the Fantastic Cast for a long time, I decided to check out your podcast, and I'm very glad I did. The family aspect, along with you guys being from the UK, offers a new perspective that is different from any other podcast. I'm always fascinated when you talk about how differently comics are published in the UK than in the US. I have thought of doing. Right an episode that is just British reformatted reprints. Oh, so we can do like the Justice League Legends and yeah. where they cut issues in yeah. half. Do an issue of Justice League Legend and an old issue of the superheroes and an old issue of Spider-Man or something like that. Right. Just an issue devoted to British UK reprints from mm. back in the day. It's, it's, it's an idea that was, was percolating. Ian continues, your discussion about torrenting comics really stuck a chord with me. Being just turned a 14... <laughs> Being a police officer... <laughs> just turned 14 year old comic fan I have no money to buy comics I have tried to read monthly but my parents do not understand the appeal of comics and I have a hard time convincing them to buy a 3.99 funny book as they call them I'm too young to get a job where I live so there's really no way for me to buy monthly comics even though I really want to I then came to the dilemma of downloading torrents however like Andrew I feel very guilty about pirating comics and I'm not able to do it in a roundabout way the point I'm trying to make is I think the comics companies by having high prices are stopping the next generation of comics readers from developing for teenagers and college-age kids, $3.99 are stopping them from being able to casually pick up four or five books every month, like they could in the 1980s. The only option for DC and Marvel is to cultivate the next breed of readers is to lower the price of digital comics to 99 cents, or one ninety-nine. Otherwise, the companies will force young readers to become digital pirates or drop the hobby. I currently read my comics by getting trade from my library. Loving the podcast, Ian McGregor. Well, there's two sides to that, I suppose. I mean, everything is more expensive now. But it used to be, you and I were a lad. <laughs> I bored you all before with I had 60p for dinner, and I spent 40p on dinner, and I pocketed 20p a day. At the end of the week, I had a quid, I went and bought four comics. I do like how you say you bought us all already, but you went and told us anyway. There may be somebody listening <laughs> who may have not heard that wonderful story before. So, right. you know, every episode, maybe somebody's first. Right. Yeah, I get it. Episode 150 brought a number of new people in mm-hmm. who all emailed saying 150 was the first time I listened to you. Yeah, okay. So you've got to, you know, got to allow for. It was, it was a good, that, that was an origin episode as well. Yeah, well, that's, that's maybe what people thought. All right, this one's just them gassing, I'll give this a go. Mm. But anyway, the point that I was trying to make is that in comparison, comics were 25 pence, right? Right. A Mars bar was 19 pence. Right. A can of pop, right. a can of coke, 
was 25 pence. So you got more out of a comic than you did with Yes, <laughs> that is exactly my point. So if you look at the rate of inflation of those things, right. Mars bars are what now? 65p? Yeah. So they've gone up 40 pence <laughs> in four, 30 years. That's how math skills come in. That's how math skills come in. In 30 years, yeah. Mm. Or thereabouts. 25 years. Comics have gone up by... By contrast... Hours. Comics that used to be 25 pence are now, what, £2.75? Uh, no, £2.99, £3.99. So, I'm not comparing Mars bars to comics. Comics are better for you and don't make you fat. <laughs> Nor do they rot your teeth, they just rot your brain. But that still seems like an incredible rate of inflation for comics. Yeah. Doesn't it? But, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a... A what's it? Well, the, An economist. The so. thing is, though, we'll, if we download something and like it, we'll buy it. We do buy it, yeah. I mean, I, I, we downloaded Godzilla. I'll be quite happy to pick the trade up for that. Yeah, well, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. So, yeah, I can understand how it would be difficult for young people. See, I'd never, you've never really had the problem of me not encouraging you reading. No. So, and I didn't have that with me now and Granddad. They were always very, at least he's reading something. Yeah. It's cheap pulp science fiction and comics, but at least he's reading wasn't reading Dostoevsky. <laughs> Probably annoyed them. David Gutierrez has reading emailed in. Yeah, reading War and Peace in my spare time, like um, Lorelai Gilmore. <laughs> the Big 150, says David. Andrew, a few notes for you and your super sharp offspring. I'd like to think I'm super sharp. And you doesn't do the show with me. Oh, oh. Ah, I see what I did there. <laughs> there you go. Those PSAs at the end of the G.I. Joe cartoon were nationally mandated. In order to get around being 30-minute commercials for toys, the cartoons of the day had to provide some sort of moral or educational merit. He-Man, G.I. Joe, and many more all had quick little lessons to make kids' life better. Yes, I remember the end of He-Man. Well, He-Man would give us a, a little life lesson. <laughs> Knowing it's half the battle. Yeah, it was something like that. I don't think he had a, a cool catchphrase like that. I don't know. Have you covered Michael's first comics? Have we ever done that? I've no idea what my first comics are. It was Batman and Superman Adventures. Oh, fair enough, then. That's what I used to read to you yeah. as a kid, and we've got a picture of you lying at the side of me reading a comic, and it is a Batman Adventures comic. Fair enough. And I'm reading Preacher. <laughs> Saying, hey, look at this. And your mum's going, he's four! Ten years later. And I'm going, oh, he'll be fine. It won't corrupt him in any way. <laughs> Oops. Uh, I've been curious what hooked him. Is your youngest son not into the books at all? No, Adam don't care, does he? He, he reads, he reads Simpsons and Futurama comics. Uh, he, I, I gave him Animal Man and Swamp Thing to read. And he read Blackest Night, didn't he? Yeah. He's read a couple of things where Michael's... You know what? He, he actually... He really enjoyed Seven Soldiers. Did he? And I, after that, I gave him Flex Mentello, and he said he didn't enjoy that as much. No, that's fair enough. Yeah. You know what, though? Yeah. He read Injustice Gods Amongst Men, didn't he? He read some... Yeah. Adam will read when we take his laptop off him. Or the TV. Or the TV. When he's been punished, he will read. The moral of this story is punish your kids more. Yeah. Punish your kids more, yeah. Because to punish Adam, we take his laptop or his TV off him. Yeah. We don't smack him. I'm not talking... <laughs> we don't punish him. <laughs> you know, we don't tie him up and beat him. The belt it is. Yeah, we don't do any of that. <laughs> but to punish him, you take his laptop off him. And he'll read. Yeah. And when he reads them, he enjoys them. But they're not his his first primary form of entertainment, are they? Because no. he's not stupid. I mean, we, you diss on him because he's your brother, but he's not stupid. No, no. And he's not thick. We're in with Asda today, buying Weetabix, right. and he's, he was the one who said, but if we buy these two, these two, you get more, and it's cheaper than that one big box. 
And we were like, okay. <laughs> we'll do what the clever one says. We'll, we will bow before you, Adam. Because by that point, he just had enough for shopping and yeah. throw it in. <laughs> he says words. Yeah. Follow him. <laughs> Any plans on covering UK-based heroes? I want to do another Judge Dredd show. Yeah. I really do want to do another Judge Dredd show. Maybe the Cursed Earth saga or something like that. Let's An actual proper Judge Dredd storyline Yeah, I want to do. Let's do Captain Britain. I've thought, I want to do some Captain Britain. The Alan Moore stuff. Okay. Yeah. I've thought about doing some of the Alamo Captain Britain, yeah. And uh, I wouldn't mind doing some Invaders with Union Jack in. The World War Two Invaders. Yeah. But they're bringing that back with James Robinson, but it's not going to be set in World War Two, is it? They're just going to bring them, reunite them, I think. Right. Whereas I would have liked to have seen a World War Two one. Mm. I knew a current day one. But uh, the only Invaders comic I've got, they were backup strips, the Invaders, and I never liked the Frank Springer artwork. Yeah. But I have got a reprint Avengers of Invaders, and it reprints an old Invaders. So I have thought about doing some of that. So that may be interesting. Uh, if you guys ever wait, you make your way to Los Angeles, dinner's on me. Well, David, <laughs> it's funny you should say that, because next week... <laughs> no, no, we, we won't be in LA next week, but... Um, it, it better be a damn good dinner to, cost, you, you, uh, to make up for the plane flight. You've got to be careful with stuff like that, David, because we may very well take yeah. you up on it. <laughs> Just us two. Forget the rest of Oh, yeah, the rest of the family's not coming. It's just me and you. Yeah. Um, uh, email. J. David Wheaters emailed in. Which is always nice. It's just called bits and pieces. Ah. Pieces and bits. Bits and bobs. Bits and bobs. Bits and bobs yes. are coming to to play along with all the. Yes, videos. and he loves mashed potato. Okay. Oh, that was Bodger and Badger, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, mixing up me, me what's that? Me kids' cartoons from when you were little. Hello, Leyland. Hello, Jay David. I know you're slimming down your email reading, so I will comply and simply leave some bullet points for discussion rather than a long diatribe. Number one, Andy, in your discussion of status quo, <laughs> did we have a long conversation about status quo? I think we had a few. Do you know when they started, they didn't sound like status quo? And then they became. At first, they were rocking all over the world. Three chords and a cloud of dust, and I like... Oh, not that status! Oh, right, I see. I do apologise. You mentioned that Superman working at the Daily Planet being Clark Kent and a superhero was status quo. However, I would posit that you were describing a premise with current supporting cast or her cut, but our marital status being the actual status quo, since status quo is translated from Latin as the current state of affairs. Well, I did say that, I think. <laughs> I did say that that people would say that was a premise, right? but you know what I mean. With that logic in mind, the status quo is always changing, else there is no story, but the premise remains relatively intact. Following that logic even further, to a specific example, the change of who's under the Spider-Man mask is indeed a change in the status quo, but it's also a change in premise, since it is not Peter Parker, strictly speaking. But it is Peter Parker. But it was, well, yeah, Ben Riley was Peter Parker. And Dr. Octopus is Peter is Parker. Do- is still Peter Parker, yeah. Clever! Yeah. See what they've done. It's all, ch- it's all changing the status quo. If you say so. <laughs> is Peter Parker still Spider-Man? Technically. Oh, don't use my own words again. Hey! <laughs> anyway, I don't... Status quo. What? <laughs> enough. Enough. We're going to end with rocking all over the world now. Okay. That's <laughs> close-out song. Two, your G.I. Joe episode was excellent. See, somebody emailed in yeah. and said I shouldn't not do that. Somebody emailed into the show and said, don't cut out when people say you're good. Read it. Bolster your, <laughs> your, your confidence. So, okay. I'm going to do that. Yeah, but do it when I tell you to. Well, you know. All right, okay. Tell me to do it. You should, you should be, like, really expressive when people say we're great. All right, okay. Your G.I. Joe episode was excellent. I could See, not agree more, David. That was great, yeah. Our, our G.I. Joe episode was fantastic. It, now you, you know now what? You sound like you're tooting your own horn. So we, I can't win! <laughs> 
Yeah, it was great. Um, I was really jealous of Luke's pick. Some say he dug deep and I went for the issue that I thought would give the best reaction. And perhaps the winners were the listeners. I like that. Yeah. Very good. I like both of them, David, so don't feel bad about it. I thought, I thought both those issues were good. I, I wouldn't mind doing another G.I. Joe. Mm. Simply because it got such a good reaction. Yeah. You know what we should do? Yeah. Luke recommended a number of different comics, didn't he? One of which was a big four-part epic. Yeah. Maybe we should do that four-part epic. Mm. Because I'm down with covering some more G.I. Joe. You know what we should try and find? What? G.I. Joe versus Godzilla. And have they done that? I've no idea. But if they haven't, they should. (laughs) Is that what you're saying? I'll I'll, I'll write it and draw it. I don't mind. (laughs) And then we'll cover our own comic (laughs) on the show. No bad words can be said. (laughs) Uruburos. C. (laughs) Oh, it's nice to see that Doctor Who joke is continuing. Mm -hmm. I appreciated your secret origin in episode 150 because I found that we share a very similar background in both familial relations and the first time we stepped into a comic store. I still remember walking into Comic Empire on Labor Day in 1987 and being stricken by a giant Marvel Universe poster and realising that Valhalla does indeed exist. Ah! Quite as evangels do. <laughs> they have a Labor Day. Yeah. Right. Do other political parties yeah, get days? Yeah, they do. Well, no, well, I presume they don't have a Labour Party. It was, you know, it was a joke. Let's move on. Uh, Number four, Matthew. I I thought you were having a serious discussion. Don't be ridiculous. (laughs) When have we ever had a serious discussion? It's true, true. Number four, Mask of the Phantasm is without a doubt the best Batman movie ever. My wife and I recently watched it and we both cringed at Andrea's line regarding Bruce's parents controlling him. Sharp dialogue and great character work. In fact, I will mention that Batman the Animated Series is probably the most perfect distilled Batman ever. It managed to merge all of the best comic book movie and live action aspects into a true... And then it just stops. A um, true work of art? You've not done that thing where, Oh, no. No? You've skipped, you must have skipped a word off there, David. But I will assume... I will speak for you. <laughs> and then I will put words into your mouth. You finish in each of the sentences. Yes, and live action aspects into a true and magnificent amalgamation of everything that makes the Dark Knight great. That was I'm sure that's what he meant to say. It was, yeah. Excellent. I couldn't agree more. Batman the Animated Series is, without a doubt, the single best interpretation of Batman ever, including the comics. Yeah. Five, finally, Civil War really sucks. <laughs> I know I wrote an email about it, but it needs to be said again and again. I just love the idea of people just emailing and going, you know what? Civil War sucked. This is your daily reminder that Civil War yeah. sucks. <laughs> I don't need reminding that it wasn't very good. Your friend, Blind Attorney by Day, Podcaster by Night, David Weiser. <laughs> that was funny. I, I was I was greatly amused by that. Um, do you want to squeeze another one in quickly? Yeah, Chris Franklin's emailed in. Marvel tells another stuff. Hi, Chris. We'll squeeze another email in before we go for a break. Hello, Leyland. Congratulations on your 150th episode. I really enjoyed the freewheeling format. Those GI Joe PSAs were indeed a hoot. Even as a kid, I could smell the lameness on them. <laughs> 
Something like members of G.I. Joe diss the PSA branch. <laughs> different branches. I, I just love the idea that G.I. Joe, just when they had nothing to do, just went around, around and gave sage advice to children. <laughs> Nowadays, if they walked up to children like that, they'd get arrested, wouldn't they? Nowadays, you'll have PSAs remind us not to speak to the G.I. Joe members. <laughs> PSA not to speak to strangers. <laughs> but what are you? Oh... <laughs> Oh dear. The voice of the paedophile in the one clip was Frank Welker, who was not only Iceman and Spider-Man and his amazing friends, but also more famously Fred in every incarnation of Scooby-Doo, and Megatron in the classic version of Transformers, amongst tons of other voices. He now voices Scooby-Doo himself. Ooh. Excellent. So Firestar and Thelma and we yeah. weren't putting out, so we decided to... <laughs> so he decided to do it himself. <laughs> Fair enough. Marvel Tales and the Lee Ditko Remita reprints were very important to me as well, continues Chris. Marvel Tales 137 hit the shelves just as I was turning seven. So just at that time, I was really beginning to fully understand my comics. I had the Lee Ditko stories put before me. Here was a Spider-Man at his very core, unfettered by changing times and numerous different creators. Also, this felt more like the classic 60s cartoon, which was still in heavy syndication. I felt like I was really getting into something special. Spider-Man from the ground up, if you will. Even though Amazing was, well, amazing at the time, thanks to Roger Stern and John Romita, and later DeFalco and Friends, I preferred Marvel Tales. You're a man of class and taste, Mr. Franklin. Although Amazing Spider-Man was brilliant at the time. Chris continues, I distinctly recall getting Marvel Tales 155, which reprinted Amazing Spider-Man issue 17, on the day my parents bought a used 1978 Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme. My dad came home with the car and picked us up and we took a country drive, even though it was the middle of the week. And those were usually reserved for the weekends. On the way back into town, we stopped at a convenient food mart and I got to pick up a comic, the aforementioned Marvel Tales, and an icy... I recall sitting on the faux leather seats in the back, sipping the icy and marvelling, pun intended, at the triple whammy of Spider-Man, the Green Goblin, and the Human Torch. There were many great memories to come in that car, especially when we came my car in high school, and especially in that same back seat. But I digress. <laughs> Did you have to clean the faux leather? What wonders? He dropped his icy. <laughs> Is that what it was? Is that what he told his mum? In his long boxes. <laughs> I told my mum that I dropped the icy. <laughs> That's what the stain was. <laughs> oh, dear, Chris, you should have let us know. We'd have cut it out. I promise. <laughs> I was severely bummed when Marvel Tales stopped printing the chronological Spidey stories, but they didn't go away completely. They just moved over to Spider-Man Magazine, a digest-sized comic published here in the US that began its reprint with ASM issue 51. DC had recently ended their digest program, and Marvel stepped up with digests of G.I. Joe, them again, and Transformers as well. Unfortunately, unlike DC, who took care to reformat art and text to make it more legible at the small size, Marvel did not. The Spidey Digests are barely readable and the muddy mess is only hindered by the awful flexograph printing process DC and Marvel briefly fell in love with in the mid-80s. For more on these digests, I suggest checking out Rob Kelly's Digest Comics blog here. I love you and I followed the link, digestcomics.blogspot.com. It's brilliant. Because he's got all the British pocketbooks on as well. Yeah. So I'm looking through that going, Man-Thing! I think that was, was that called Chiller? It was a pocketbook series called Chiller and had Man-Thing in it and a couple of other strips. It was really good. I used oh, to love those little pocketbooks. We're only about 20p. Uh, Chris wraps up with Take Care, Jets, and I look forward to next week's episode. Chris Franklin. You're very welcome, Chris. Thank you very much. We're going to take a quick break. Thank you to everybody who emailed in, and thank you to everybody who has continued to email in. There's a good number of them that we've not yet got to, but we appreciate it. We like having a bulging sack, don't we? 
A bulging sack of emails is what we like. If you've written in and not got to it yet, we have only just got to the beginning of November. So there's every chance you're coming up. Coming up! As they used to say on Playgirls of the Playboy Mansion or whatever. Playgirls of the Playboy. It was something like that, I don't know. Uh, we'll be right back after this trailer for a podcast that Which is no is doubt great. magnificent. Yes. I think so. together from the disparate reaches of geekdom, here in this restaurant booth are the most powerful forces of geek ever assembled. Ryan, the toy geek. Scott, the award-winning radio host. Jeff, Scott's minion. And Ron, just Ron, dedicated to truth, justice, and geek for all mankind, it's Dinner for Geeks. Dinner for Geeks proudly crusades at twotruefreaks.com. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. And we're back. Michael's eating. I am. There we go. Chocolate is wet. In hat. <laughs> sky's blue. <laughs> The birds burn, the bees be. Uh, following up from last week, we continue our look at the Silver Age of Comics. And this week, we have picked comic book stories that, again, at least attempt to be like versus like, and coincidentally originate with some of the same creators as last week. Following on from the successful resurrection of The Flash, editor Julius Schwartz, who we talked about last time, cast his net wide into the back catalogues of the DC Universe to see who he felt would work in a more modern context. The net pulled in Green Lantern. Originally created in 1940 by Martin Nodell, Green Lantern's real name was Alan Scott, a young engineer who discovered a magical green railway lantern. Speaking to him in the form of a mystical green flame, the lantern urged Scott to create a ring from the lantern's metal. With the ring on his finger acting as a conduit for the green flame's power, Scott dressed himself in a colourful outfit of green, red and purple and became the Green Lantern, fighting for the forces of good. And that was pretty much the only motivation needed in the Golden Age. As with most other superheroes of that time, Green Lantern's fortunes faded as the 50s rolled on, and he became a prime candidate for Schwartz's Everything Old is New Again approach. Schwartz handed the project over to writer John Broom and artist Gil Kane, and basically said the same thing he said about The Flash. Keep the name, ditch everything else. With this brief in place, Broom and Schwartz came up with a fantastic concept that, as with Flash, was deeply set in sci-fi territory and thus the arena Schwartz was most comfortable in. Kane designed an all-new costume that followed the contours of the male body and this new Green Lantern debuted in Showcase issue 22, cover dated October 1959. This Green Lantern was Hal Jordan, a test pilot for Ferris Aircraft, who was chosen by a power ring belonging to an alien, Abin Sur, who had crashed on Earth. Jordan took possession of the ring and the mantle of the Green Lantern for Space Sector 2814, a.k.a. our Space Sector. The ring worked on willpower and could create anything Jordan could think of, making it an enormously powerful weapon that sadly had one weakness. The colour, yellow. Yes, deciding that Alan Scott's ring's allergy to wood was too silly, this time the ring would not work on anything yellow. (laughs) Well... He certainly got rid of his uh, weakness to wood. Hey! Oh! <laughs> that's just 
don't know what to, what to say to that, so I'm moving it was on. placed in front of me and I just. Pointing out that yellow is a far more acceptable and plausible Achilles heel than wood. Yes. Yes. It's just gone now. Yes. It has. Yes. There was also the added bonus of Green Lantern not being a single solitary hero like Superman, the Flash and the rest, but was part of an intergalactic do-gooders society, the Green Lantern Corps, which patrolled the various different sectors of space. As with Flash, last time Green Lantern was given a tryout period in Showcase before being spun off into his own magazine, but not before joining the Justice League of America for a few adventures. Unlike last time, we have elected to not look at the origin of the character, rather preferring instead to take a look at an adventure from his second appearance in Showcase issue 23, cover dated November-December 1959, to get a better feel for the kinds of adventures the character experienced on a regular basis. Entitled Summons from Space, the story was written by John Broom with art by Gil Kane and Joe Giella, who also did the cover, although that cover features elements from the second strip in the issue, The Invisible Destroyer. I read this, however, in The Superheroes, Volume 1, Issue 8, which once again, as last week, has no publishing date beyond 1981. So not Issue 5? Well, yes, but it doesn't have a month or anything. It doesn't say... Volume 1, Number 5? I've written five! You said eight! Alright, if I said eight, imagine that I did five. <laughs> I read this, however, in the Superheroes Volume 1, Issue 5. There you go, they happen. Yeah. We'll, we'll fix it in post. <laughs> if you actually did say five now. <laughs> if I did actually say five, I'll cut out that entire exchange so you don't look like an idiot. Alright. Okay, that seems fair enough. But if you did say eight. I'll leave it in, because I don't mind looking like an idiot. <laughs> Just another day. <laughs> Just another day at the office, yeah. Hal Jordan, a.k.a. Green Lantern, seems to be using his newfound powers to attend galas and date a string of beautiful women, inadvertently making himself his own worst enemy with the girl he's genuinely attracted to, Carol Ferris. Carol is his boss and declares a moratorium on their dinner dates, but having never heard that three's a crowd, she says, if I were to invite Green Lantern, well, maybe she could bend the boss-employee rules a little. Carol swings that way, doesn't Carol it? apparently does, yes. Uh, perplexed by this turn of events, Hal returns to work where, rather stupidly, he has his green lantern on display for all to see, and from this receives a summons to Venus. Charging up his ring in the lantern and stating his oath, GL takes off. Landing on Venus, GL encounters a large pterodactyl, and he is stunned that his ring doesn't work on the yellow creature. Green Lantern escapes by hiding in a rock crevice, and after the pterodactyl gets bored and leaves, GL snoops around and finds a race of prehistoric caveman, telling that the pterodactyl creatures are trying to wipe them out. GL, despite not knowing anything about the ecological nature of the planet, or even if these cave people should be wiped out as part of the natural evolution of the planet, lures the pterodactyl creatures into a cave with a ring construct of a hawk, an earth animal that the pterodactyl creatures couldn't possibly recognise, but are inexplicably terrified of, and GL traps them there to die. Green Lantern accepts the thanks of the cave people and swiftly flies home because, hey, he has a date. At home, Gene Lantern... Gene? Gene Lantern? <laughs> Who the hell's Gene Lantern? I don't know, but he's having hoops. <laughs> I'm having hoops. At home, Green Lantern dates Carol after telling her Hal couldn't make it and the love triangle between two people continues. Did you like that? How do you mess up so much <laughs> that you're competing against yourself? It was the 50s, man! 
What's the point? It's the most important thing in this issue. Not the pterodactyls or, or the, the, the people on Venus. The flipping love triangle is the main centerpiece. Yeah, it's the, the centerpiece of the plot. That's where all the drama comes Yeah, the summons to go off and fight on Venus is kind of incidental, it's isn't an it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I suppose I'm going to throw some action in for the kids. <laughs> It has an excellent splash page, though. Yeah. I mean, I, I think this benefits immeasurably from being in black and white, as does the next story we're going to cover, but we'll get to that later. Uh, because this is a British reprint magazine, it's oversized, so it's much bigger than the American comics of the time. And I think in black and white that looks awesome. I can only imagine that in bright yellow that pterodactyl would look god-awful. Yeah. But here in black and white it looks looks excellent. I imagine it was red. I read the entire thing as Green Lantern versus Rodan. It was so much fun Until he way. tried to use his ring. Oh, that just made it more fun. Yeah. But when he used his ring on it, how did you explain that not working what, what? In, your, in your tiny mind? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> you didn't. It's, it's, you just glossed yeah, over yeah. that. Oh, well, in that, that, on that splash page, it doesn't say he's yellow. And where no, it just says my power ring has no effect against this huge flying reptile. I have to use the power of my fists and punches it in the <laughs> yeah, face. Rocky versus Rogue. <laughs> Again? <laughs> a film I would watch. But it, we're, we're reading this in black and white as well, so I had no idea it was in yellow until the scene was repeated later on. When it actually, well, that's one of the things about the splash page. There's an awful lot of this story given away in the splash. Yeah. Isn't there? The scene on the splash page is from the middle of the story, and the caption tells us half of the story before we've read it. Mm. I thought that was... Was that normal for the time? I mean, I know having a splash that was almost a second cover was normal. Yeah. But it seems a bit odd to me that they, they tell you what's happening in the first part of the issue here, right down to his power ring not working on it. So when you get to that point in the story, it's not a surprise. No. So I thought that was that was slightly strange. I also thought the opening of the story was strange. We've got Green Lantern as Horn Dog. <laughs> Haven't we? I just found it funny how he, how he just wore his Green Lantern outfit and everything. Well, wouldn't you? All these galas and all these dates, especially when they say, oh, he was dining at a fancy restaurant with <laughs> this beautiful lady. He does it all in his Green Lantern outfit. He does, he does, he does. And I didn't get why he was so popular with women, as he's a bit of an arse to him, isn't he? Yeah. He's not particularly nice to them. Um, I did like you know props to the girl who just flat out asks him what his secret identity is yeah I like that an awful lot but did Lois Lane never try that approach (laughs) if she just said to Superman so are you Clark Kent because remember you have this whole truth deal yeah so answer me <laughs> rather than shooting Clark Kent yeah I'll do it any number of wrong. other wacky yeah, she could have, if he hadn't been Superman <laughs> she'd just shot her friend <laughs> don't or, or if he decided to give up his powers at the wrong time <laughs> <laughs> just before she shoots him <laughs> yeah. even with blanks it probably still would have hurt um page three Green Lantern makes the rookie mistake that all superheroes of this era made. He says to Carol quite clearly, Oh, Green Lantern and I are friends. <laughs> Any problems that he has in the future, as a result of him saying this, are all his own fault. Yeah. Aren't they? No sympathy at this point. Well, what would the drama be then, though? Well, the sensible thing to do would be go, Green Lantern, what do you want to grab that tosser for? And have nothing to do with it. Yeah, but it's Hal Jordan. He wants to boost his own ego. He, he wants to boost Carol. Is what he wants to boost. Oh, yeah. He pays, speaking of Carol, page four. Carol's a right pretty <laughs> in this story, isn't she? Mm. She she coldly plots to see Green Lantern after Hal stupidly says that he's his friend, and then asks Hal out 
She absolutely does. She absolutely says, well, you're going to take me to dinner this evening. And Hal's all like, hey! And then she, she cock-blocks him. Yeah. She steps back. She cock-blocks him with himself. Yeah. She steps back, basically says, oh, no, 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 I don't date co-workers. But you just asked me! You asked me out! Yeah. And then she says, maybe it'd be all right if that Green Lantern block came along. And Hal's like... What? The, with the, what? No wonder the poor guy's confused as hell. Carol's into a bit of three-way action. Yeah, but how would he, how would he do that? Menage à Green. <laughs> I am curious, Yellow. <laughs> oh, dear me. But was that Carol's ultimate goal, a three-way conversation? <laughs> was that what she was hoping could, for? Could he not uh, wear, be Hal Jordan and wear his ring, but keep it hidden from her? And, and manifest a, a green lantern. Create a green lantern construct. Yeah. But wouldn't it be bright green? Would she not be like, have you got radiation poisoning? He's it? green lantern. Just just say, well, have you ever seen me up close before, Carol? <laughs> I'm actually green. Yeah. There's <laughs> a reason why they call me green lantern. <laughs> I've been exposed to gamma rays. I'm as green as a lantern. <laughs> Page five. Why does green lantern keep his recharging battery at work? He, he did later on. He still keeps it in his locker. Oh, in his locker? Fine, but oh, yeah, here he's just, just lying out on the table. Yeah, well, I found it funny that he's just wearing a suit. Like, he's, he's not wearing any he, overalls or anything, like, you because know, he works on planes and he pilots them. He's just wearing a suit. Yeah, because he is at work here, isn't he? Yeah. He is, they're just on a coffee break. So, yeah, I suppose he is at work. Seems a bit odd that he's wearing a suit, but... No, that, I thought it much odder that he left his, like, his lantern on the table. Presumably, Ferris Aircraft has cleaners. Yeah. Who can just wander in and out of any room. Because he does say it's the privacy of his own dressing room. So, all right, fair enough. Yeah. Maybe he's wearing a suit, because it was the 50s and everyone wore a suit. Apparently. But he wears his green lantern uniform underneath. When, when... Because uh, the, the, he did start it with it being... It well, beams onto him, yeah. like in the film at some point. Whereas no, I think he, that was after John Stewart, because even he wore an outfit, I think. Did he? Yeah. All right, fair enough. I, I don't know enough to, to say Maybe that. Maybe it was another Johns thing. Yeah, well, possibly. It may have been later for Jeff Johns, but somebody only has to walk in that room and see that, and it's, hey, bye bye, secret ID. and see green yeah. glowing. That made no sense to me, but wouldn't it be better if he kept that at home? Probably. I mean, granted, we wouldn't have had... Well, we could have had this scene at home, couldn't we? Yeah. This could have been the, the end of the day he's gone home. Would have worked just as well. Hal promises Abbon, sir, he would obey the voice, which he doesn't know yet is the Green Lantern Corps, I presume. Yeah. I presume he doesn't know about the Corps. More than anything, I felt this showed the naivety of the, the era. For all Hal knows, the voice could be evil. Yeah. And asking him to do stuff that has an adverse effect on the space sector. He doesn't know that, does he? Mm. He doesn't know anything about it. He doesn't know where this vo- disembodied voice comes from. Go, go blow up this small town. Well, the voices say so. Yeah. Better go do it. The voices in my head told me to do it. <laughs> like, you are insane. <laughs> he never questions them. Although, the Guardian's arrogance and overinflated egos will become a plot point later in the Bronze Age, won't it? Hmm. When the, you, you start realising that the Guardians may not be everything that they're cracked up to be. Well, that, that became one of the, the main points of Johns' run. Yeah. That they were the ultimate bad guys, but they were good guys. P- absolute power, corrupting, absolutely. Mm. And all that stuff. Uh, Hal constructs a protective bubble around himself 
that will enable him to breathe for a day for his flight to Venus. Now, because I'm interested in stuff like this, I looked this up. Right. According to the Universe Today website, it takes in between 97 and 153 days to get to Venus, depending upon launch speed and trajectory. That's a lot of days in between. It is, yes. That's, that's a quite a big range. It is, but they were, they were looking at this one went that way, and this one went straight on, this one did slingshot, all that kind of stuff. So anyway... <laughs> okay. The point I was trying to make. You take the scenic route. (laughs) (laughs) You take a a nice, um, nice Sunday drive through the the solar system. The point I was trying to make is that we've not got there in one day. Yes. All right. Okay. Uh, Venus is Earth's sister planet in size, although the atmosphere on Venus is highly toxic, consisting, as it does, mostly of carbon monoxide. So to get there in less than a day, one would have to travel at 850,000 miles per hour. He's a Green Lantern, he can fly that fast. Can he? Yes. Alright, fair enough. But I'm, not, I'm not saying that he couldn't. And the radiation thing, that way he can, he can get away with creating a construct of himself and glowing green. <laughs> well, well, Miss Ferris, I was on Venus today and I'm radiated. Well, he never says when he lands on the planet that he drops the force field. Yeah. So that could be a no prize. But how are all these cavemen living? Because they're blue. Oh, right, okay. Because <laughs> we're reading it in black and white, we didn't know that. They, they do point uh, out they are blue, though. All right, fair enough. But so yeah, they've, yeah. they've been holding the breath for so long. That <laughs> they're blue. Yeah. That's why they're blue. Yeah. All right, fair enough. These, these cavemen people can breathe carbon monoxide. Yes. And Green Lantern never lets the force field down. No. All right, I'll, I'll go with that. Page seven, I thought Hal seemed a little surprised. He fires the power ring at the pterodactyl. And he's absolutely like, my power ring has no effect on the yellow creature. And he seemed surprised by that, didn't he? Yeah. Did you get that as well? Yeah. So it wasn't just me. On page 10, he clearly references that he's well aware that the ring does not work on anything yellow. He's well aware now. Yeah. Why was he surprised here then? Is this before it? Yeah, yes, this is page 7. 7 comes before 10. <laughs> well, that's why then. He's well aware because this is the first time it's happened and in three pages' time, he's no, well aware. He actually says on page 10, how can I battle these yellow creatures when my ring is powerless against anything yellow? Implying that he knows it's powerless against anything yellow. he just yellow. found out three pages ago. Wow! Because he so just used it quite on a leap to go, my ring doesn't work on this pterodactyl, it mustn't work against <laughs> yellow. That's not the conclusion I would come to if my power ring didn't work against a pterodactyl. My first thought would probably be, oh, maybe my ring doesn't work in this atmosphere. Maybe my ring doesn't work against dinosaurs, because it's not like I've met any before. Well, I was just going to say, would your first reaction not be, oh, it's a pterodactyl? (laughs) Yes, probably. (laughs) But my first thought wouldn't be, my ring doesn't work against anything yellow. That's the point I'm making. So it's the fact on page 10 that he leaps to that conclusion, if this is the first time that his ring hasn't worked against something yellow, Mm. seemed a bit odd to me. But, you know, what do I know? All that being said, I did like the fight scene between Green Lantern and the Pterodactyl. I thought it was pretty exciting and quite interesting. I did like that Hal uses the ring to translate the caveman's words. Yeah. I thought it was genius. I can just, I can use willpower. All right. Translate. He doesn't speak to them back, though. No, he doesn't. But maybe they wouldn't understand him. Can you not use the ring to translate his own words? Possibly. Maybe he didn't think of that. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe he just stands there and looks cool in his natty green what if, outfit. What if the, the, the humans were um, also yellow? Would the translation work there? Possibly not. 
I didn't I didn't think of that because yeah. my coffee's not not colour. So I, I the cavemen could be could be yellow. Well, they do say that they're blue. They do say that they're blue. So they're, they're, you're the ring would work on them. Ah, fair. That's it. I, I, I find it funny that during this big fight scene, Green Lantern actually doesn't do anything. He, get, he gets his hawk to do it all. Yeah, well, that, that, that... See, the thing with that... He realises birds are normally scared of fiercest member and conjures up a hawk, right? Right. How does this pterodactyl know what a hawk is? Well, maybe it's scared because it's never seen it before. Do you think it's just but, scared of something big? What I couldn't get past was why the hell would a pterodactyl be scared of a hawk? I know there's birds of prey and all, but it's a pterodactyl. Well, he does make the hawk considerably larger than the pterodactyls. Yeah. So maybe they're just responding to its size maybe. rather than anything else. I didn't think, you know, it wasn't a deal breaker. The one that strikes back, though, and has... Oh, oh, crap. Yeah. <laughs> better hurry up. I better lock them all in this cave where they will die. <laughs> Problem solved. Yeah. <laughs> uh, again, the, the fight scenes at the end were fine. Although the story seems wrapped up a little bit quickly. Because then the next thing you know, he's... he's next page, he's smooching with Carol Ferris. As Green Lantern. Hal couldn't make it. Yeah. What a coincidence. And then Hal's at home going, gosh darn it, he beat me to it again. <laughs> but he is me! Oh no! <laughs> However do I get out of this dilemma? Um, despite the fact that we've just spent the past couple of minutes taking the piss... Haven't we? Yeah. It's it's fair to say that I I enjoyed this quite a bit. I really did quite enjoy reading it. It's easy to pick holes in this story, given that we know more about Venus. But if you just imagine this is set on some distant planet in some far-off solar system, then it still works as an entertaining yarn. Subtextually, it's quite easy to read into this a story where Green Lantern just arrives on another planet, butts in, enforces his will on the indigenous people, and then leaves without knowing the policies and ecology of the environment or area. But that is bringing in a 21st century perspective to what is a pretty simple 50s sci-fi yarn about helping your neighbour, even if that neighbour is on a distant star and coloured blue. (laughs) Also, there's a man versus nature subtext to the story, which again is applying a modern sensibility to a story that probably didn't expect to be remembered a month after it saw publication, let alone 50-odd years later. Green Lantern using his powers to pick up girls is pretty fun, Probably the kind of thing that normal people would do. And the opposite of other heroes in this time who were either in a relationship, the Flash, trying to avoid a relationship, Superman, or too busy hanging around with boys, Batman. And his hound dog aspect to the character was something I found very interesting. Sadly, this was let down with the Carol Ferris stuff. Carol comes across as rather manipulative, refusing to date Hal because of her interest in Green Lantern, and it seemed that in this story it overshadowed her rather more interesting personality trait, that she was a young woman in the 1950s who ran her own company. I would like to think that this received more play in later issues than the rather tedious love triangle plot, although I appreciate the writers at least tried to inject some personality into the strip. Carol Ferris becoming the evil star Sapphire probably added some spice to the relationship later as well. However, as a ten-year-old, I do feel that this would have been a fun read, although there's nothing here to bring me back for more. It's a problem I always had with Green Lantern as a kid, although I would enjoy one-off strips and stories as they were presented in the superheroes, and conceptually, this is pretty damn good, there was nothing in this story that really hooked me into reading it regularly. The art by Gil Kane is excellent throughout, although he hasn't yet become the Gil Kane that I would love in later years. His panel layouts aren't quite as dynamic as they would become in a few years' time. What did you think of it, Michael? Um, 
It, it, it was different. I'm, I'm used to modern Green Lantern, so it, it was... I, I enjoyed it, but it was very different. Yeah, I enjoyed and, uh, it a great deal. In fact, I, the, the Green Lantern bits were better than the Hal Jordan bits. And yeah. I, I know that's how it usually goes, Yeah, but especially when you sat there going, Hal, what are you doing? You're competing against yourself. Yeah, because of his own fault. Yeah. It's his own fault he's in this mess. <laughs> and so, yeah, Green Lantern versus a pterodactyl, there is no bad there. No, no, no. Is there? Like you say, you know, he doesn't really do a lot. But it was the action scenes were fun. I enjoyed it immensely. Mm. It it is very definitely aimed at a different audience than now, but it was in no way bad. Oh yeah, no one no one's shooting their own heads off in this issue. Yes, no one gets stabbed in the back or has a throat slit, and there's nobody falling out of the tops. No, well, not yet. Not yet. No. And the point of this is to look at the Silver Age and kind of try to say, well, was it really as silly as people would have you believe? There was nothing overtly silly about this story. I'd say that the, the, the Carol Ferris, Hal Jordan stuff was silly. Yeah, oddly, the human drama was sillier yeah. than the other stuff. Right, okay. I know. I'll, I don't disagree with you. Mm. Oh, all right. But there was nothing in this that made you go, oh, Silver Age. <laughs> was that? No, no, no Green Lantern in a little dressing gown. No. I'll try to expose his secret identity, uh, Something like that. Uh, riding a tricycle. Yeah, uh, for those that care, this week's, this month's issue of the Superheroes also had the Superman story, The Dagger That Ripped the Sky, and the Batman story, Paint a Picture of Peril. It was also just prior to Superman 2 being released, and we get two stunning stills from the yet-to-be-released movie Superman 2, then still build The Adventure Continues. And it's... Yeah, well, it's a still a Christopher Reeve Superman and General Zod. Yeah, they're pretty boring. They're all right. Yeah. I mean, because it does give away that General Zod gets into the Fortress of Solitude. It does, yeah. So that made you go, ooh, as a kid. Mm. I, did, I enjoyed I did, that. I did flip through the rest of that. Yeah. And um, I didn't read anything else. You should have done. But the Neil Adams artwork looked really good in black and white. Neil Adams looked better in black and white. Mm. I've said it many, many times. I still think it's true. Neil Adams looks better in black and white. Green Lantern continued like The Flash, sometimes successfully, sometimes not, and was teamed up with Green Arrow for a time in a series of stories that would bring about the end of the Silver Age of comics. Like The Flash, Green Lantern's alter ego, Hal Jordan, would be killed off after turning evil, resurrected as the Spectre, before being reinstated as a Green Lantern as part of DC's rather obvious ploy to bump the character up to an A-list level in preparation for his movie that unfortunately tanked at the box office. Oh, there was a big gap in between. I know, but I, I, I didn't feel like covering the entire history of Green Lantern when we're doing the Silver Edge. You want to do a Green Lantern show in the future? Feel free. Well, did you know that he was once paralyzed? Well, he had too much to drink, did he? He was paralyzed. <laughs> I've been in that situation. <laughs> Threw up everywhere. Did it, yeah. it was horrible. Fell asleep. It was you with my Buzz Lightyear, wasn't it? Was, it he wasn't your brother, it was me. <laughs> Next up, Marvel's turn. Marvel's Silver Age pick this week is The Mighty Thor. Thor was picked as a companion for two reasons. One is very similar to Green Lantern in my reading experiences. I liked him just fine, and I have read his comics off and on over the years, but never really got hooked on his stories. And B, there seems to be a little similarity in the mythology of the characters, a sprawling backstory involving gods or godlike beings, monsters, far-off lands, and alien beasties. It's a bit tenuous, <laughs> but it worked for me. 
fair enough. It's so. your show. I, well, it's yours as well. But, but you didn't listen to me when I said it was a bit tenuous. <laughs> no, no, I didn't. But I don't disagree. I just didn't listen. Yeah, Which tends to be how I go with all criticism. <laughs> I don't disagree with any criticism. I just don't listen to it. <laughs> if you don't listen, you can't disagree. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Thor was the latest in a long line of Marvel creations from 1962. As explained by Stan Lee into the introduction to Marvel Masterworks Thor Volume 1, the character really came about due to his needing somebody who was stronger than the Hulk. And after pondering this for some time, Stan asked himself, well, who's more powerful than a god? With this inkling and his desire to look at the Norse legends he was interested in as a child, the idea of resurrecting Thor, the god of thunder, took hold. Whether Stan didn't bother researching the Norse legends when he got the idea, or whether by handing the strip off to Larry Lieber and Jack Kirby he just didn't care, isn't clear. But Thor's appearance in the comic, long flowing blonde Timothée Hur and clean shaven handsome face, bears little resemblance to the Norse god of myth who is described as being of the ginger persuasion and quite hirsute. There was also some confusion in the early comics over who actually was Thor. Disabled Dr. Donald Blake finds the majestic Uruhammer Mjolnir while holidaying in Norway, and it is inscribed with the legend, Whosoever wields this hammer, be they worthy, shall possess the power of Thor, implying that Blake wasn't actually Thor. This was later retconned so that Blake was Thor, cast out by Odin to teach him some humility. We learn that Blake wasn't actually a real man, rather a construct of Odin, and designed to be the very opposite of Thor. Where Thor is strapping and powerful, Blake is timid and disabled. Where Thor is a man's man and a lady's man, Blake's a bit of a wimp. Regardless of origins, in the early days, Thor was very much a Marvel comic. Secret identity, unrequited love, love triangle between two people, etc, etc. It was only later that the more mythological elements came into play, which leads us to... The Mighty Thor, issue 157, cover dated October 1968. The cover by Jack Kirby and Vinnie Coletta shows the claw of Mangog grabbing Thor as the city behind him burns. Behind him, Ragnarok, states the cover, which is also the story's title. I like the cover a great deal. Thor struggling against the grip of Mangog is well depicted, and the prone figures and burning backgrounds contribute to the idea that this is a fight worthy of Thor's metal. What did you think? It's good. You're, you're saying nice things about Jack Kirby. You're feeling okay. Yeah, yeah. A little bit. That's <laughs> still time, is that? Yeah. <laughs> the issue's only just begun. Yeah, fair enough. Now let's see if Stanley and Jack Kirby, aided by Vince Coletta and Sam Rosen, can get us out of this one. Is the credits. That's pretty much it. Thor is all that stands between the monstrous Mangog, possessor of the strength of a billion billion beings, as he advances upon Asgard and the Odin Sword, which if drawn, will cause the universe to perish. When Thor doth unleash mighty Mjolnir, Mangog brushes it off as a mere inconvenience and continues his advances. Elsewhere, Balder the Brave has been fighting brain-swaddled Asgardians for Carnilla, who professes to love him, but seems to have been making him fight all this time because he won't slip her a length. The battle hath unclouded the minds of the men, and they swear fealty to Asgard. Crestfallen, Carnilla frees them all and is left with naught. 
This turn of events works in Asgard's favour, however, as with only four left standing, this infusion of new warriors bodes well for the fabled realm. Thor, meantime, has revived the fallen warriors three, and Hogan doth detect the ground swelling, courtesy of Mangog's massive might. The worst hath happened. Mangog has reached Asgard. Mangog brings down the walls of the fabled realm, destroying the eternal flame, much to the Bangal's distress, and causing the inhabitants to flee. Suddenly in rides Balder, leading the battalion of men he freed from Carnilla's clutches, swearing for Odin, for Asgard. Mangog maketh short work of the first troops, but a four more blood can be spilt on this day. Thor, attached to Mjolnir, takes rest upon Mangog's back. Mangog doth crush the Thundergog into the floor, and verily makes sauce of him. Balder leaps into the fray, distracting Mangog from the killing blow. The wounded Thor is rest from Mangog's arms, and the mighty Asgardians open fire with their most terrifying weapon, the Cosmic Bolt. Alas, even this cannot halt the Mangog's rampage, and Thor makes his way to the royal chamber where the last stand will be made. It's a long synopsis this one, isn't it? Thor arrives as Loki, who has taken the throne after Odin entered the Odin sleep, prepares to flee. Thor bids him be gone, and with the Lady Sif and the Recorder, here to monitor this day for historical purposes, Thor prepares as Mangog, leaving destruction in his wake, enters the chambers, making a through line for the Odin sword. Mangog fights every step of the way, casting aside the Lady Sif as if a mere rag doll, and pounding upon Thor. Despite the blows, despite the futility, Thor continues to fight as Mangog reaches the Odin Sword. Tearing it from its mighty scabbard, the universe shakes as the cosmic shockwaves prepare to tear asunder the fabled Asgard and then the very fabric of the universe itself. Ragnarok hath arrived. It's very dramatic as well, isn't it? I've forgotten I've written this. But still Thor fights on. Using his own mighty powers and command of thunder, Thor fights the cosmic storms, reigning in the fury and in doing so hopes to awaken Odin from the Odin sleep. The desperate last minute ploy pays off and Odin awakens. Using the power scepter, Odin commands the Mangog to be free. Odin placed Mangog's entire race under the Odin spell, but in fact trapped them all within the frame of Mangog. With Mangog released and his race having paid their dues, returned to life again, the Odin spell is reversed and the danger is past. Odin returns the Odin sword to its scabbard and Asgard stands triumphant. Well, that was a lot more dramatic than I remember it. (laughs) You know, I do not remember writing that at all. Bloody good though, wouldn't it? Mm. If I do say so myself. <laughs> no one ever writes in and says that was a bloody good synopsis, Andrew, so I'm saying it. Oh, fair enough. Yeah. That was a bloody good synopsis. You really get an interview promoting was, yourself now. Yeah, should have kept the mouth shut, really, shouldn't they? <laughs> Page one. I have looked at some of this in colour right. on the internet, and I have to say it looks so much better in this essential volume. It really does. The reproduction, always a hit and miss of her with the Marvel Essential volumes, is stellar throughout. And Mangog is ridiculously coloured in the original stories, being a garish yellow and red, and wearing slightly silly pink underpants. 
Removing these elements gives Mangog a much scurrier err. If I'd seen him in colour, I'd probably be too busy laughing at him to be scurred. In monochrome, Kirby gives Mangog a terrifying look. He's all horns and spiky teeth and clawed hands. A slightly terrifying image that is offset by the pink underwear. He looks really sad, though, in that splash page. Yeah, well... You wouldn't be happy either if you looked like that, would you? <laughs> Let's be honest. Is that why he's... I'm not on? an animal! <laughs> Jimmy! It's Joey. Joey. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this page also mentions, for the first time, that Mangog has the power of a billion billion beings. It will not be the last! Okay. Page two, not being a great fan of Vinnie Coletta, his inking in this story is actually quite good. There were, however, a few picture-versus-story clashes. Thor hurls Mjolnir at Mangog, and when it returns, Thor states that it almost knocks down the Warriors 3. But the Warriors 3 all look like they've been trampled by Mangog rather than diving out of the way of the hammer. Maybe they just decided to lie down. Maybe they just decided to have a nap <laughs> in the middle of this fight. They just thought, oh, I can't be asked. Well, the, the Asgardians, you know, they, they get really into it, so they've got to get tired out easily. Because they're so fearless, they just lie down and sleep on the battlefield. And let Thor do it all. Yeah. That seems fair. Why, why do the Warriors do even bother doing anything? Thor fixes everything. Oh, no, Hogan comes in useful later. <laughs> he listens to the floor and can hear the vibrations and manages to say, look, Mango's heading to Asgard. To which the readers went, yeah, we know. <laughs> Pages three and four, this whole Carnilla tries to seduce Balder plot ran through the previous three issues as well, because this was a four-issue story. Mm. Uh, but I did I even reading the previous three as well as this I wondered what the hell the point of all this was Balder just satisfy her needs and move on so all you need to do slip her some Asgardian sword <laughs> and then go off and do what you've got to do but right. all fur play to Lee and Kirby they were setting up a bunch of Asgardian warriors that aren't actually in Asgard so Balder has got an army to bring into play at this point in the story. Right. Very clever. Lee and Kirby plotting stuff in advance. Even though it was a bit confusing. No, it wasn't confusing. It was just more of a kiss. This went on through all four issues. Yeah. And I was at the point where I was thinking, come on, Balder, just nail her. It kind of it halted the flow of the story. Yes, it? it did. And it does in all four issues. But like I said, this it, it plays into the story. So suddenly you're going, ah, that's why I had a bunch of Asgardians. Yeah. Not on Asgard. I get it, so now Baldur's got an army against Mangog. Not that they do any good. Yeah. But still, the point was that there is a lot of power in the scenes where Baldur builds everyone up to protect Asgard. He's actually quite cool in this, Baldur. Not whilst an Asgardian lives. Take arms, one and all. We fight till we fall. I like that bit. I thought that was very St. Crispin's. Yeah. St. Crispin's Day speech. I thought it was great. Uh, there's a wonderful splash page on page eight of Baldur leading the troops into battle for Asgard. For the realm eternal. An Asgardian is never late. He arrived precisely when he needs to. <laughs> Just like wizards. <laughs> Seems far enough to me. Uh, page seven. Going back a page. I love that Thor is on the back foot throughout this entire issue. He's been beaten every single time. He goes up against Mangog and is essentially playing catch-up the entire time. So much so, Mangog makes it to Asgard, destroys the walls of the city and lays waste to a great deal of Asgard before Thor can, he can catch it. The battle in the middle of the issue with Mangog destroying the armies of Asgard is very well done. 
by Kirby, as usual, featuring the powerful pencils we've come to know and love. I especially like the scene on page 10, where Thor hurtles into the scene, riding Mjolnir, and lands on Mangog's back to fight, and Mangog just pounds him into the dirt. In fact, without Balder, it's possible Thor would be feeding the tree now. Mm. Mangog just owns him, doesn't he? I love that Thor jumps in, lands on his back, and then Mangog just tosses him off. Yeah. Not like that. <laughs> and then stands on him. <laughs> that was yeah. brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. Page 12. Thor looks absolutely wrecked in the bottom panels of this page as he drags his beaten and bloodied carcass onto a horse to try and beat Mangog to the royal chamber for what will presumably be the final battle. Mm. Pages 13 and 14, the sheer pace of the story and the amount that's going on at this point means that Loki's plot, where he takes over Asgard when Odin's asleep, is kind of brushed off. Which is a shame, because the movies have managed to mine this semi-Shakespearean family drama for all it's worth. Mm. And this is very similar to... Thor, anyway. Yeah, the there's films. an awful lot of this that's similar to Thor 2. Odin being in the Odin sleep. Well, that's one. That's all in Thor 2. Loki taking the throne whilst Odin's not available. That's in Thor 2, isn't it's, it? It was the first one, really. He doesn't go in the Odin sleep in the first film, does he? Yeah. Does he? Yeah. Is he in the Odin sleep in both of them? No. Just the so I'm mixing it with the first one? Yeah. Right. Well, yes, but it's all in the films, is the point. That one well, is. I guess this fight's the big fight in the second one as well. Yeah. There's, there's, I thought this would have easily made Thor 3, Mangog. Yeah. I mean, they'd have to rejig some of it, but... I mean, they borrowed so many elements from it anyway for the first Yes, two. there's an awful lot of this straight in the movies. Yeah. Which is quite interesting when you're reading it going, they've done an awful lot of it that is from the comics, fair play. Mm. Excellent, well done. Like Superman's battle with Doomsday, Thor's battle with Mangog is relentless, with Thor opening up with Mjolnir at every opportunity, and Mangog just taking it. It doesn't make any difference to him at all. And then Metron just shows up. It's not Metron, <laughs> it's the recorder. He looks a little bit like Metron, maybe he's like second cousin on his mother's side, but they're not actually the same man. Right, oh, okay. Although, an Asgardian New Gods team-up would have been cool if Kirby had done it while he was still alive. Yeah. I think that would have been brilliant. Odin awakening from the Odin sleep at the end of the issue is a little bit deus ex machina. Yeah. Isn't it? But, in all fairness, it was seeded in the previous three issues. Yeah. So it was set up. If you're just reading this issue on its own, I can... I can agree with you that, yeah, it seems a little bit convenient, mm. doesn't it? But if you've read the whole story, Lee and Kirby pull it off. Just. Yeah. Doesn't seem quite as out of the blue. <laughs> Odin wakes up. Oh, what a glorious morning. Where's my way to fix? What the bloody hell's this? Odin wakes up and ends the story. <laughs> the end. <laughs> Which is pretty much what happens. Yeah. But, you know. Um... I actually thought this was utterly magnificent. Mm. I thought this was absolutely fantastic. Because Stan wrote Thor in that faux Shakespeare way anyhow, the dialogue's not quite as flowery, oddly enough, as it occasionally got in regular books. Because it's written to be flowery. Mm. So you don't pay it as much attention. And the tension builds throughout this entire issue. Thor throws everything he's got at Mangog only to be beaten down at every single turn. 
In the interests of full disclosure, I will declare that when I picked this issue at random and learned it was the last part of a four-part story, I read the first three parts before approaching part four. And the sheer scope of this story is astonishing. Mangog is released by Ulick the Troll and sets about getting revenge on Odin for what he's done to his race. And what follows is a very similar in structure to the death of Superman arc in the 90s. Mangog destroys property and wipes out Asgardian armies in his quest to get the Odin sword. In a similar way to Doomsday and the final fight between Thor and Mangog here, does not go well for Thor at any stage. In fact, Mangog owns Thor every single time they fight, again, similar to Doomsday, with only a last-ditch effort saving the day, although that last-ditch effort awakens Odin rather than taking his life. Points have to be deducted in that this is a true conclusion to the story, with Stan and Jack paying no heed to anyone who hasn't read the previous issues, and thus wasting no time getting to the action, and Balder and Odin do come across as a little convenient when reading just this one story, but when taken as a whole, the storylines do not seem as contrived. Loki is given short shrift in this issue as well after being given an excellent build-up with him taking the throne when Odin enters the Odin sleep. Still, an excellent read and one of the best Silver Age comics we've covered thus far. In no way stupid or silly. The stakes are high, the body count higher. I presume you only read this one. Yeah. What did you think of it? I really liked it. It's great, isn't it? I, I actually prefer this to Green Lantern. Is that where you're going this week? It is, yeah. I'm swinging Marvel. Mm, that seems fair enough. I enjoyed this so much, I carried on reading. Yeah. And it was one of those things in the notes, I wrote the thing about, well, so who was Don Blake? Was Don Blake for or was he not? Because I'd never read this. Yeah. And then the next two-part story in this essential is the answer to that question. Fair enough. That was just pure coincidence, but it did enable me to go back and change my notes, to go, ah, right, fair enough. And then after this, you've got a Galactus four-parter, yeah. which I'm currently halfway through, which is, so far is absolutely brilliant. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Absolutely marvellous stuff. Thor would go on to be a solid success for Marvel, but as with all characters, has had his ups and downs. Other than a handful of Lee Kirby issues, the only extended run on Thor I've ever read are Walt Simonson's excellent run in the mid-80s and the Joe Straczynski run in the mid-2000s, which was good, but in true JMS fashion didn't actually end, as Marvel no doubt got in the way of his ego. He's currently riding high thanks to his second solo movie, The Dark World, being a huge blockbusting success both critically and commercially. So, who's better, who's best? Michael's already given us his verdict. Yeah. I thought this was hard to call this week. To be completely fair, I don't know if we chose a Green Lantern story that best reflects the series. And being nearly a decade younger than the Marvel comics may also skew our opinions. Marvel changed comics an awful lot in those ten years. Mm. I think it's fair to say. If we'd chosen an earlier Thor story, maybe that would have been a fairer comparison. However, we were restricted to just what I own. It's as simple as that. The list of Silver Age Green Lantern stories I've read, you can count on one hand. And whilst I've read a little more Thor, it's still not in double digits... I picked up the Green Lantern story simply because it was one I had. I looked through my issues of the superheroes and went, we'll do this one. Yeah. It was real scientific. <laughs> and with Thor, I just picked one at random from the only essential Thor volume I own, which is volume three. With all these caveats in mind and bearing in mind, I did like the Green Lantern issue just fine. I don't think there was anything wrong with it. But this week, I think I'm going to have to declare Marvel the winner. 
Sure, this is in no way scientific, and it's just us looking at Silver Age books to see if their reputation for being silly is deserved. And with that in mind, neither of these stories were particularly silly. Both were enjoyable reads, but Thor, like when we covered Conan a few months ago, made me want to read more. Green Lantern was just fun. The strips don't really share a lot of similarities, despite me trying to link them. And again, the differences are the same as they were in last week's episode. Marvel was already more serial in nature. This story, in specific, is a four-part adventure that also has plot threads from earlier issues and leads into future stories, whereas the Green Lantern tale was a quick done-in-one. Green Lantern drops a few marks simply because we know a lot more about Venus now than we did 50 years ago, but the Thor story is just more dramatic, more exciting, more vibrant, more... more than the DC tale. The DC story seems a little staid in this case, and as I said, maybe an earlier Thor tale would have yielded a different result, but this made me mad keen to read more Silver Age Thor. Both stories held up as good reads, though. Neither one of them this week was bad. No. I think is the the point that I'm trying to make. But Thor was just marvellous. It grabbed you by the throat and didn't let go. Yeah. All the way through the issue. It was fantastic. Absolutely loved it. Absolutely amazing. And you went with GL this week. What did you go with last week? I've forgotten. No, I went with Thor this week. Yeah, you went with Thor this week. What did you go with last week? Flash. Right, so it's one for one. Yeah. Because I went with Flash last week as well, didn't I? Mm. Yeah, we both went with DC last week. So we're both in agreement again. Yeah. So we need to stop doing yes, this. Yes, we need to stop doing this. So we're both in agreement, and it's 1-1 one, one Yeah. as we approach the half-time. Excellent. All right, well, we hope you enjoyed that. I know I did. I thoroughly enjoyed that Thor stuff. Absolutely brilliant. I think after seeing the two Thor 2 as well this week, yeah. last week, I'm re-watching Thor. That probably helped, because it is pretty damn good. Next week, DC's favourite second banana, Batman and quintessential Marvel character the Silver Surfer go head-to-head in a Silver Age clash of titans. There are so many similarities between the two. There are none! (laughs) (laughs) That was just... (laughs) I I said I tried to go for like for like. I I guess. I suppose I could have done Batman and Daredevil, but I was more interested in the Silver Surfer. Batman and Spider-Man, though. Ah, well, Spider-Man's going up against Superman. Right, okay. The two big guns are going up against each other in the final episode. What about Captain America and Superman? Captain America was in the Avengers story. So he was. So, I mean, we could always do this again because we got cut short. We had plans for a fifth one. Yeah. Uh, Well, that bloody Christmas holiday. But Christmas got in the way, didn't it? Christmas crept up on us. I'm sorry, Luke, as well. If Luke's Luke's listening, it was going to be Hartman and Iron Man. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm really sorry because I thought that would be cool because I don't know anything about Hartman. But uh, maybe, maybe up, Christmas will be like an intermission. We maybe ended. Up, we had to cut an issue. We'll return to the scheduled entertainment after that. Yeah. Well, we've not decided what we're doing in the new year. Straight off, we're going to celebrate Daredevil's fiftieth. Yeah. And we're celebrating the Joker's birthday. Yeah. Notice at no point have I said what birthday we're celebrating. Yeah. Because <laughs> we've noticed a slight problem with celebrating the Joker's birthday next year. Why is that? It's not his seventy-fifth. <laughs> Although, to be fair, right. I've never actually said anywhere we're celebrating the Joker's 75th. I, I just think... said we're celebrating his birthday. And he will have a birthday next year. Oh, uh, okay. But what happened was, I liked, lovely listeners, the truth is, I thought Batman number one came out the same week, the same week, the same year as Detective Comics 27. And therefore, right. the Joker's 75th was the same year as Batman's. And it isn't. 
But I'm like, no, I want to do it now. I'm not waiting another year. Well, that's what you want to separate yourself from other podcasts. So that's certainly yeah, the way to do it. Everyone else will be doing it in the 75th, won't they? <laughs> Let's do it in the 74th. Yeah. <laughs> it's still his birthday. <laughs> so next week, it's Batman in the Silver Age versus the Silver Surfer. In the Silver Age. In the Silver Age. The Silver Surfing Age. The Silver Surfing Age. And the then, Surfing Silver Age. Yes. And then the... Can I finish? And <laughs> then on the time. Are we done? <laughs> and then the final Silver Age, the two big guns, Superman versus Spider-Man. One will live, one will die. <laughs> it's like Thunderdome, <laughs> isn't it? Superman and Spider-Man walk in. <laughs> Superman walks out. <laughs> Spider-Man just does blot on the landscape. And it's just like, he walk, comes out one end, comes out the other. <laughs> he just walks right through, doesn't even bother stopping. <laughs> Oh dear God, we just get sillier and sillier, don't we? We do. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> sufficiently silly. Sufficiently silly, yes. Thank you very much for that. So next week, Batman Surfer, be here. I'll be square. Yeah. It's <laughs> made like a tree and get out. <laughs> it's leaving. It's the 50s, dude. See you next week. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Kids Comics is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only, and no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, your one-stop shop for a plethora of truly fine shows. Join in the fun. We have a website where you can see the covers of the comics we've covered at www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We also have a forum, www.forumforgeeks.com. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. <laughs>